The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, November 10th at Capital Weekly's postmortem of the 2022 election. Today's podcast will present panel two, the ballot propositions. Our speakers today are Brandon Castillo of Bicker, Castillo and Fairbanks, Terry Holloman of the California Teachers Association, Stephen Maviglio of Forza Communications, and Sherry Sadler-Wolf of Sadler Strategic Media. Our moderator for this panel will be Nicole Nixon of Capital Public Radio. We're going to go ahead and get started with the panel in just one second. But uh, first, let's thank our underwriters and sponsors for this event. Support for Capital Weekly's post-mortem of the 2022 election was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Whiteman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Thanks, Tim, and thanks everyone for joining. Um, thank you to our panelists for being here. I'm really excited to get into the ballot propositions. Um, a lot of interesting stuff this year. Um, quick, I'll do a quick introduction, and then I guess I'll just start questions. So we have Brandon Castillo, who's a co-founder of Bigger Castillo and Fairbanks. He's managed many of the highest profile ballot campaigns in California over the past couple decades and boasts a 95% success rate. And this year um, he worked on the no on 29 uh, dialysis campaign and yes on 26. By the way, if I get any of these wrong or if I miss something, please feel free to jump in and correct me. Um, we have Terry Holloman, who's the Executive Director of Governmental Relations with the California Teachers Association. She has spent 15 years consulting for unions, campaigns, and elected officials. And CTA this year was supporting the No on 30, Yes on 31, and Yes on 28, which was the music and arts funding. Terry, did I get all that right? You did, and we'll also okay. yes on Prop 1 as well. Okay, perfect. And then we have Stephen Maviglio, who's a principal at Forza Communications. Um, before that, he worked with multiple assembly speakers and was press secretary for Governor Gray Davis. Stephen, you are working with Yes on Prop 30 campaign this year, and you told me you try to only do one campaign a year, one ballot prop campaign a year. So we're also joined by Sherry Sadler, who is the founder of Sadler Strategic Media. She's worked with hundreds of candidates throughout her career and has placed over a billion dollars in ads. Um, sounds like a good chunk of that came this year with the sports gambling <laughs> uh, advertisements and the L.A. mayor's race. So we'll get into that. Um, I guess I want to um, maybe just start with the the ballot proposition um, advertisements. You know, there was so much, almost half a billion dollars spent on these two ads, a lot of that in, or these two campaigns, a lot of that in advertising, and they both just went down in flames. So, um, Sherry, maybe you can provide us a little insight into what you think happened there. Uh, I would have to say that um, successfully, we all caused a lot of confusion. Uh, there was just so much information. I actually think that the uh, my client was uh, yes on 27. And I think that they might have underestimated how serious Californians are about uh, the Indian community. 
and protecting whatever rights they have. And certainly the fact that they, uh, you know, had well more than, there were five of us in the end, if you count the no on 26 guys, which was the card clubs. So it was, it was overwhelming. I think with that confusion and the amount of money we were all spending, it wasn't clearing, clarifying anything. And the fact that we started so early, actually the Brandon can probably address how early uh, the Indian tribes, the various tribes, uh, tribal groups, because there were two solid yeses um, on 26. And then we didn't start till July. And even though we were slamming it in pretty hard, we just weren't seeing any, um, you know, positive. Uh, yeah. From the public. Well, I do want to ask Brandon too, because Brandon did the uh, yes on 26, no on 27. So it was like, there was yes on 26, no on 26, yes on 27, no. It was just so much. Um, was it a messaging issue or were people just overwhelmed by all of these and just saying, I'm not even going to deal? Um, well, I think I agree with Sherry. It's, there's no question that it was a very, very good day for California, California's Indian tribes and a very, very bad day for the out-of-state corporate operators who completely miscalculated uh, and underestimated, I would say, um, California's tribal leaders and tribal community. Um, you know, we've had polling from them. And I, and I want to clarify, there was no yes on 26 campaign. We made a strategic decision early on. Um, we saw in the polling the confusion that was wrought between the two measures. And so um, our, our coalition leaders, our tribal leaders made a decision not to run a yes on 26 campaign. We didn't spend any money on traditional paid media because we foresaw this confusion coming in our polling and you know decided it was just too much for the voters. And the tribal leaders, once the out-of-state operators filed the measure, they completely turned their attention to no on 27 because the measure from their perspective was a significant threat to tribal gaming, tribal sovereignty, and Indian self-reliance. So um, so very good day for the tribe, bad day for the out-of-state corporate operators. Um, but I'll say as well, um, California voters at this point, our polling consistently showed, just didn't support online sports gambling. They could have dressed it up and called it, you know, save puppy dogs and grandmother. And the voters just weren't there. Uh, they called it a solution for homelessness. The voters didn't buy it. Uh, so we knew, Sherry talked about us going out early. We knew the corporate operators had several hundred million dollars, maybe even $300 million we predicted. And so, yeah, we got out early. We defined this race as all about online sports gambling. Once we did that, there was really no place uh, for the proponents to go because we had we had defined this with the voters and we knew that voters do not support in its current form online sports gambling. Um, the big gaming companies have talked about possibly coming back in, in 2024. Um, so I'm curious, Brandon, what the tribes are feeling now. Um, it, we're, are we going to see two more, maybe one more sports gambling measure in 2024? Or is this, are, you, are we looking at the legislature now? I think the voters would hope no, right? I mean, there's clearly voter fatigue. Uh, tribal leaders are, are, are regrouping now. You know, we're fresh off this election. Um, they're not a unanimous bunch, so they have to, you know, meet, talk, and decide um, what they want. I think what's clear to say is that um, I don't believe, personally, any online sports gambling measure could pass um, with significant funded opposition. I mean, we are in a presidential year. It's a different electorate. Uh, things change over the course of two years, but 
um, with significant tribal opposition in 2024, uh, I think you know you'll you'll see the same the same result. So um, you know maybe the out of state operators will learn their lesson uh, that they they can't go it alone. Um, so I, I'm not going to predict what's going to happen, other than to say uh, I think there has to be a significant meeting of the minds for anything to happen in 2024. I also think that the you know the out of state guys um, might recognize that. Uh, the voter fatigue is only as long as the memory of the voter. So if they came back with a different, you know, message or felt that there was a way to work with the tribes, I, I don't know. I'm not a that kind of consultant, but I know that our efforts were, you know, valiant. We weren't just resting back on our laurels, but I like I said, my opinion is that it was uh, and uh, they were overwhelmed and the voters were overly confused and they just decided no, 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 no <laughs> on all of it. Yeah, I should note that we were going to be joined by Dana Williamson, who um, was running or working with the Yes on Prop 27, but she was not able to join us today, unfortunately. Um, so we'll miss her insight. Um, I want to go to Prop 30 now because this was probably the the big surprise of this cycle. Um, Steve, uh, Prop 30 seemed to be doing well until the governor came out against it. And there was an assertion in the earlier panel that Gavin Newsom single-handedly tanked Prop 30. So I'm wondering if you would agree with that. Yeah, I think he can own that. I think what's most curious, though, is that this, this was something that was passed at the Democratic Democratic Party's executive board meeting unanimously. It was on the consent calendar. And Gavin Newsom has plenty of clout there. Terry's group has plenty of clout there. And yet nobody said a word there. So it was quite fascinating the way the governor suddenly dove into this in July, scrambling to put together a team, which he wasn't, wasn't even a campaign against it at that point. And you're right, he had an enormous impact. Our polling, their polling, everybody's polling showed that, you know. Governor came in with lots of money from billionaires and down it went. Um, Terry, you are also, you know, no on 30. Like, what what do you think the impact of the governor? And I'll also point out that the CTA spent um, quite a bit of money fighting this as well, correct? We did. We did. Um, so first, I should start and say thank you for having us today um, just for the discussion. I think it's important to always do a little bit of a postmortem and talk about what we learned and talk about what we observed. Uh, for CTA, this was a really difficult decision. Um, I think hands down, universally, our members would say that we support all efforts to combat climate change. Uh, I think with this particular initi initiative, the problem that we had was not the concept. It wasn't, should California be doing more to address climate change? It was the construct. It was how the initiative was drafted. So for folks that are, are watching, um, this was a tax, a wealth tax on uh, individuals and um, families who made $2 million or more a year um, that would have lasted a minimum of 10 years, maximum of 20 years. Um, that money was to go to dedicated uh, resources for vehicle infrastructure, zero emission vehicle infrastructure, to the exclusion of every other area of the budget, including education. So our opposition to this was not about climate change. It was about the way that the initiative was structured. Um, I would suspect, I'm not speaking for the governor, but I would suspect that he shared similar concerns about obligating the state 
in that way so that if there was ever a recession, if there was ever an economic downturn, that's not money that can be tapped into um, by the legislature. And so um, did the governor make a difference? Absolutely. Um, to Steve's point and question uh, about the Democratic Party, I think at that point we weren't prepared. We weren't prepared to take on um, people who traditionally have been allies, both the party and the environmental community. Um, that took a lot of soul searching on our part. Um, CTA does have a soul and we did soul search on that um, and decided that ultimately this was not the right uh, initiative for California. And so that's why we opposed it and spent $5 million. Another interesting thing about this is that, well, at least the way the way the governor was opposing it, he, you know, framed it as this corporate giveaway for Lyft. Um, and I wonder if anybody has thoughts on that and the impact that might have had, whether it, you know, swayed voters one way or another. Uh, certainly. I mean, passing taxes is hard. I think the, the, the biggest reason it got defeated is because there was an opposition campaign. And if you look at the history of tax measures in California, they don't historically pass when there's significant funded opposition. Uh, and in this case, um, the No on 30 campaign came in late, uh, but they were effective. Um, and so voters are skeptical, even if it's not them that are going to be taxed. And so framing this as, you know, the benefiting one corporation or one special interest, however, however it may be, I think that's a tried and true method of defeating tax measures in California. Yeah, and I'll jump in and just say, like, look, newsflash, billionaires don't like taxes. That's not shocking to anyone. Um, nor is it shocking that CTA would oppose something that doesn't benefit California students and California's public schools. Um, it's also not shocking, and I think was never really fully um, admitted or embraced by the yes side, that Lyft contributed $50 million or near $50 million because they were going to have a benefit from it, a material benefit. Um, and what was always interesting to me was that you didn't see the same from Uber. Um, one of the things that emerged during the uh, campaign is that Uber made um, an investment about $800 million into fighting climate change. And our contention outside of our opposition because of the impact to schools, but our contention was that taxpayers shouldn't have to supplement a for-profit company. Um, and that's what this was, was Lyft um, engaging in a way um, so that they could uh, receive a benefit. And uh, that for us was problematic. I'm not a big fan of Uber in terms of you know, their history with workers and workers' benefits and rights, um, but at least they stepped up to the plate and offered to fund you know, combating climate change to the tune of $800 million. Didn't see that same commitment from Lyft. And frankly, Lyft tried to hide um, the fact that they were contributing. So that that was a big issue for us as you know, a company that, as an organization that you know, opposes companies that don't support uh, workers' rights. And Nicole, I, I just wanted to say one thing, uh, maybe just as a voter, uh, were the ballot measures all suffering a little bit from having been written uh, incorrectly, not enough research, not enough, you know, because my take was the same as Terry. Why just Lyft? Where's Uber? Uh, is this really something that's only going to affect that company? I felt the same way about 27, as Brandon pointed out. Is this really about homelessness or, you know, I, I don't know because I don't write these uh, props, but as a, an observer, I felt like I saw too many holes or add-ons. Maybe that's the way to put it. Well, and that, and that gets to what we've been hearing the last couple of days is that 
when voters are confused about ballot propositions, there are conflicting messages, they just tend to vote no. And I think that's what we saw for maybe some of these things. Sorry, Stephen, I want to give you an, an opportunity to respond to anything on Prop 30. Yeah, I think, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say this is for one company and then say, well, why wasn't Uber there? It didn't benefit one company. It benefited everybody. Of course, some of the drivers of Lyft are some of those everybody's. And, you know, there's a stack full of fact checks saying the charges that this was a quote corporate carve out or was a false claim. And as far as hiding the money, there's something called Cal Access. It was very clear Lyft was funding this from the get go for months. Uh, it cost $15 million to put it on the ballot. And once that was done, the spending was about even because the billionaires, as Terry pointed out, ramped up for it. And, you know, it was very interesting that the government for California group, which on most items labor is diametrically opposed to, was with a strange bedfellow mix of CTA and the governor. And so that, uh, you know, was the curiosity factor of all that and the, the money coming from all those different camps that generated a lot of media interest. And sadly, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the policy aspects of this measure, but more on the money. Did you, um, do you have any insight into why Lyft put so much money into this, but Uber did not? No, they just had different strategies. You know, there was uh, multiple articles that talked about how this was developed. It was put together by a, a bunch of transportation and environmental groups down in Los Angeles and the NRDC. And like many good ideas, as anybody on this panel could tell you, lots of good ideas come from people and they don't have any money to make it happen. And it just so happened that the wife of somebody who was working in that group knew somebody from Lyft. And like a socially responsible company, they went into this and said, okay, we'll help you out with this because yes, it indirectly benefits them just as most things do. So that's that was their interest. Uh, as for the Uber relationship, I don't know, the governor tweeted a picture with their CEO during the middle of this. So uh, he also donated to the governor's campaign at the day that uh, this came out. So, you know, you connect those dots if you want. I don't happen to think that's the case, but I think the companies had different philosophies. Well, the fact remains that um, the governor has set these goals for California to phase out gas-powered cars, um, bring in a lot more electric vehicles. This would have provided more rebates, uh, more infrastructure. So um, any thoughts on, you know, what's next for funding for electric vehicle infrastructure for the next, you know, few years before we're supposed to get to that goal? Well, that's the interesting thing that the, the opponents claimed, and they're accurate, that the governor has put more money into this than any other governor, and that's good. But now we have a mandate. The billionaires who oppose this, they can have a garage full of Teslas if they want. But this proposition had a lot of money dedicated to low and middle income families, particularly in disadvantaged communities. And it's going to be very interesting for how those people are supposed to afford all these new cars when they won't be able to without the kind of resources needed here. The reason it was guaranteed funding is so that money would be there despite the recession. And we all know that, you know, Terry does a great job in the legislature when it comes to allocating money, education gets the most, healthcare is right there, corrections is right there, and environmental issues go to the bottom of the heap when things get cut. And this would have uh, demanded guaranteed funding so we could actually afford to meet those goals. So it'll be very challenging to see how we meet those goals without the kind of money that was generated by Prop 30. And Nicole, if I can just jump in here, I think one of the things that again is to be appreciated about this is that the way that the initiative was structured, again, would have, I think the LAO estimated somewhere between three and a half and $5 billion per year is what it would have generated. Minimum of 10 years, maximum of 20 years. 
So we're talking about at its height and over its you know, highest length of time, $100 billion that would have been dedicated for um, zero emission vehicle infrastructure, um, rebates, all of that. Again, um, laudable goals, no opposition from us on the goals of the initiative. But what we, do, uh, what we did object to was the fact that over the life of 20 years, $40 billion would not have gone into education. That's just a fact. That's just the way that the minimum funding guarantee works. The proponents wrote the initiative to um, intentionally circumvent Prop 98. Well, in doing that, what that means is that the legislature's hands would have been tied, not just for the 40 billion on schools, but 60 billion on any other area of the budget. So healthcare, corrections, public safety, elderly services, um, all of those social services. So for us, it wasn't just about schools. It was about the other areas of the budget. Um, you know, I can speak again to the governor and you know, his, his um, uh, motivations for wanting to do this, but I can say, I think we objected to the constant characterization that this was only the billionaires. Again, billionaires don't like taxes. We dealt with that two years ago when we did Prop 15, which the governor did support. So I think you know, it's a little bit disingenuous just to talk about the governor's role in this. It's not like he's never supported tax increase. This was bad policy um, for all of the reasons that, that I shared. And so that's really the reason why I think you saw the outcome. And as Steve said, the strange bedfellows. What I've said to folks is it's a really improper um, and probably impolitic thing to say with strangers who I don't know are on the Zoom. Um, but what I've said to folks is that the proponents intentionally, knowingly, willingly got into bed with Lyft. Um, we woke up next to David Crane and Governor for California. There's a distinction between the two. <laughs> There, um, you know, you were talking about revenues and taxes and, you know, things like that. The governor said a few years ago that he wasn't going to support um, more tax increases. Um, and this is this would be a tax increase. It wouldn't affect, you know, the millions of, of taxpayers. It would only apply to a small, a small subset of very wealthy um, earners. But there's also, um, you know, this phenomenon in the past couple of years, or at least being talked about that wealthy people are fleeing California, they are feeling overtaxed. I'm, I'm curious if this played a role at all, if people really feel this way, that if this had passed, they would have like moved to Texas or Florida. Not having been involved in the campaign, but just looking at a lot of polling, I doubt very much that voters were concerned about the billionaires. Uh, that is not the reason they rejected Prop 30. Uh, but it does send a signal about tax increases. Um, you know, voters are skeptical. The higher income tax is the easiest one to pass. And frankly, sometimes the only one that voters are willing to accept. Um, you know, as we look ahead to tough economic times, um, you know, it's going to be interesting. I presume in a presidential 2024 election, there are going to be proposals to increase taxes. Um, but look at PPIC this morning. People are, I mean, it's inflation. It's all about inflation. It's all about costs. And so I think that played a big role, even though, um, you know, voters probably didn't see themselves being taxed. There's just a high degree of skepticism about anything that raises taxes, raises costs potentially in this environment. And so I think it it is telling for 2024 for all of those advocates who are looking to that what would otherwise be a favorable presidential ballot with higher turnout, um, you know, where the voters are going to be, where the economy is going to be, what inflation is going to look like in two years. Um, where there may be tax measures on the ballot. I think it's, it, it could be a very difficult environment to pass taxes in the presidential year. Um, not shocking, you know, CTA is not opposed at all um, to tax increases, particularly to benefit students and, and schools in California. 
um, and uh, we're not opposed to wealth taxes. I think we have to be really um, deliberate and intentional and considerate of a number of different factors um, when thinking about taxes. And so uh, we have no plans at this point in time for something um, in 2024, uh, but doesn't mean that we won't do something in the future. And if you if you look at the ballot argument, I mean, that was raised in the ballot argument that was signed by the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. And I think some of the opponents of this have to be very careful because the campaign they bought on to, which talked about this climate, a business climate, and embraced this myth that billionaires are leaving the state in droves when they're actually quadrupled in the last four years in the state, uh, that might come back to bite them because that argument uh, is something that's put out there by the Republicans on a constant basis. It's always knocked down by every study, but people buy it because the people they see, the low and middle income people that are leaving the state are hurt by higher taxes and more regulations. And sadly, you know, this is what the no campaign advanced out there perpetuating this myth. So in the future, we have to be careful about that. Um, we were talking about uh, before, sorry, Brandon, if you had something else to say about Prop 30, cause I was gonna move on. I, I was just 30. gonna disagree with my friend, Steve. Voters did not reject Prop 30 because they were worried about billionaires or worried about billionaires leaving California that, that played little if anything into opposition i mean i agree democrats, with that i agree with that. skeptical i mean at the end of the day republicans are going to oppose tax increases and so they convinced the governor's team and terry's team convinced enough democrats and declined to state voters um that there was something wrong with this measure even though voters typically support higher income taxes um they they, they raised enough concerns about this particular measure where the money was going who was funding it um, but it was not a repudiation of, of uh, taxes on billionaires by any stretch. No, and I, I didn't mean to say that it was. I'm saying it was certainly with Republicans. All our polling showed it. Um, and it appealed to some Democrats that sort of a bad business environment it wasn't the number one factor, but it was in the thought process for sure. I do want to talk briefly about probably the proposition that flew most under the radar, which was the um, music and arts education question, Prop 28. Um, Terry, this would uh, this earmarks one percent of education funding for music and arts programs. Um, since you were just talking about, you know, worries about um, funding being tied up for certain things, what is um, this? Doesn't guarantee any new funding for schools, but what was CTA's thinking in in supporting this? Because there is possibly a recession on the horizon. No, it's a really good question. And, you know, we obviously throughout the course of the pandemic saw a lot of uh, challenges for our public schools. Um, and we're seeing um, now more than ever the importance of not just social emotional support programs and academic programs, but also programs related to music and arts. We know that kids who um, have music and arts programs, um, you know, learn better in math. Um, tend to do better in other subjects like English. And so for us, um, we were not the, um, the drafters of this initiative. Uh, it was uh, former Los Angeles Superintendent Austin Butner who uh, drafted the initiative and uh, really dedicated a lot of his own personal resources uh, and did some fundraising. We came in and supported work with them on some of the language, but then came in and supported it because we know that right now, um, California, which is, you know, now the fourth largest economy in the world, but is somewhere in the neighborhood, we don't have new numbers, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 25th, 28th, and for people spending, we have to do everything we can to give our students a leg up. And so this was a no-brainer. I mean, we were um, pleasantly surprised that 
there was not um, a ballot opposition argument to it. Um, and you know, it's, it's done very well um, in the days where obviously we don't have final results yet, but it's done very well with California voters. And so um, while we wanna prioritize um, everything as, as much as we can as it relates to, to school funding. Um, this was something that we felt was really important because often as our members who are music and arts teachers tell us, you know, in order to sustain those programs, they have to do bake sales and car washes. It's a lot of supplemental funding. And um, what is great about this is that 100% um, of the money um, goes to 70% of the schools in California. So every school or other way around, 70% of the money will go to 100% of the schools in California. There's an additional 30% that goes to low-income schools and schools are in the most need. And so that was really important to us to support. I want to um, I want to throw a question to Sherry um, because you did a lot of these uh, gambling proposition ads. Um, did, were there any other campaigns that you were handling media buys for? And I'm just like curious about like general observations uh, as well from this cycle. Sure. Um, well, I had a bunch of candidates. One in particular was uh, Rick Caruso. So the Los Angeles market was, you know, highly impacted and crazy, crazy. Uh, the stations, the media was very happy about all of that here in, in uh, Los Angeles anyway. I didn't see that much in other markets, always in Sacramento, but it was softer everywhere else. I also handled um, in Gavin Newsom <laughs> and part of his commercials uh, were the no on 30 and um, yes on prop one. You know, so some of it was us purchasing and then the copy was changed to reflect those, um, supporting those. I had several smaller races I'm, I'm saying smaller, even though they're big statewide, Malia Cohen, Rob Bonta, Alex Padilla. Um, but not everybody was that busy. It was interesting. Um, even we got right up to the end with Bonta and he decided not to, not to put his money down. Um, I think it's polling, you know, you could see that he was going to make it. And Malia Cohen did a little bit, um, but it was really 27 and Caruso that was really our big issues. You know, Caruso was the most fascinating um, after, after Yes on 27 stopped advertising mid-September. Um, we just did a lot of different things. I, I have to give him huge kudos. He did not miss a single group meeting, whether... Um, he had a conversation on the phone with uh, the local African-American station, radio station, or he went to the um, Iranian station. I mean, he literally was everywhere. I, I give him huge kudos for that. It wasn't just us buying it all. The Korean uh, population here in Los Angeles, and we got lots and lots of feedback uh, without it being a media buy. You know, we got lots of interviews and, but it was pretty crazy. It was. And we left no stone unturned on either of those accounts. Uh, probably the biggest issue uh, I had was outdoor because outdoor is a very unique medium in that once we commit, we own it. 
And so we were unable to stop that train <laughs> and just let it fly, see what happened. Um, it became sort of moot. We didn't bother changing the copy after a while. So that that one was unfortunate. I don't know that I would be all that keen to recommend outdoor uh, for future candidates or props. But yeah, was, they were pretty nuts. I was curious, the conversations you were having, um, you mentioned that 27 ads stopped basically in mid-September. And I think that was around the time that first poll came out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, what were those conversations like with that campaign? Well, it, it was uh, eked out. Uh, that was the one thing that was kind of surprising about it. Like, we're just going to take a break uh, for two weeks. Then we're going to come back. And then we're going to take another break. And that just never resurfaced. We were done. But our buys for uh, media were all made. You know, unfortunately, it was... Uh, kind of on my back to continue and well let's call it pre-booking as Brandon knows that's very advantageous when you're coming in with a lot of money and try to get the best prices uh, but I kept having to babysit it because they weren't completely canceling they were just eking it out so that was tough because I couldn't quite get to the bottom of why, this is why we need Dana, um, why it was being eked out. Let's just, let's just call it, you know, if we're not coming back, let's call it. I think they were waiting for more polling, uh, see if they really thought that it was over. So it was not, a, it's not fun, that part. It was, it was over. It was over. <laughs> it was over. It was over in August. I mean, we saw in our polling, we tracked every single day. The question isn't uh, why they stopped advertising. The question is why they started advertising to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. This thing was was not going to sell to the voters. Uh, and a uh, little fact, it's on track right now to be in the top six, potentially the top five most colossal failures in the history of California ballot initiatives since the early 1900s. Uh, Rob Pyers tweeted that out, so I'll give him credit to it. But right now it's standing at the sixth uh, highest no margin. And I've been doing this for 25 years. Uh, we focus on ballot measures. Um, I've actually never seen a campaign that spent so much uh, and got so little. Uh, you know, we're standing at 16% of the vote. Do the math. That's about $10 million per percentage point. Um, yeah, but I, I have to say, though, you know, if they were going to go at it, you know, go big. Right. Go big and then go home, which is what they had to do. But, you know, they they're, were going to give it their, their all. You know, why not? If they're, they weren't convinced, if they weren't convinced from the get-go and thought that they could overcome, uh, go big. And we did until we didn't. And that's really how it rolls. I've um, never had one fail that big either, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, Brandon, I mean, based on your research, I'm, I'm just curious um, why this was so big because there have been successful online gaming measures in other states. So what was... Like what was so different here? Funded opposition and the tribes. Um, there have been, there has never been a, an online gambling measure passed. A lot of those were passed by legislatures, by the way. Um, there's never been one passed by the voters with significant funded opposition. Um, you look at what's happening in Florida, um, where the Seminole tribe there is is blocked them from uh, even getting on the ballot. Uh, they 
They did a, an aggressive campaign to prevent fan, uh, fan, the Fan Kings folks, the out-of-state operators, from even qualifying their measure. So, um, as I said from the beginning, our polling showed, um, despite this belief that online gambling is inevitable because half of the states have approved it, um, it wasn't. Our polling showed from the very beginning that voters just aren't supportive of it. Um, fewer than 30% of voters support it, well over 50% just on the plain concept opposed it. So no matter how, and, and frankly, the, 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 you know, the FanDuel's and DraftKings admitted that when they called their measure the solutions to homelessness. They didn't say online sports wagering. They said, this is a solution to homelessness, um, which the voters completely rejected. They didn't buy it. Um, you know, the, the ballot wording said it was about online gambling. So um, again, voters just weren't, they weren't there. They weren't there from the very beginning. I still hearken back to my first comment, though. I think it was more about the feeling Californians have for their Indian brethren. Honestly, I feel there's like no question. Just... I, I, I agree with Sherry. Um, our polling showed there's a strong correlation with voters, how they feel about California's Indian tribes. We asked the question um, because the Yes on 27 side started with ads saying that this was by and for Indian tribes. And we had a correlation that showed um, just the importance to California's electorate of where Indian tribes stood on the matter. And so um, I completely with, agree with Sherry. It's one, voters, you know, they, they just don't support online gambling today anyway. And number two, they very, very much care where California's tribal community stands. Uh, and our polling definitely showed that there was a correlation um, between voters and, and their affinity for tribes and where they thought the tribes stood on the on the proposition. Well, then why didn't 26 do better? Um, and I'm sure you're going to say it's because tribes basically abandoned yes on 26 mm -hmm. and we're going all in on no on 27. Confusion. Uh, we have, in fact, we just got out of the field with a poll last week where we asked voters, do you support in-person sports wagering at Indian casinos? And mid-50s uh, say they support it with very low opposition, but they're confused on Prop 26. Uh, and there was funded opposition to 26. If you look at what the No on 26, the, the card room casinos, what they did, they latched onto our No on 27 message. Their first ads called it a massive expansion of gambling. Well, that was that was exactly what we were saying against 27. We saw this coming. We saw this coming well in advance. Uh, the tribes actually tried to qualify Prop 26 for the 2020 ballot. Um, not a lot of people know that, but it was a submit in 2019. And because of COVID, they didn't get the signatures and a judge extended the signature timeline and so it was put on 2022. Um, I'm very confident that would 26 have been on the 2020 ballot, uh, we could have passed it even with funded oppositions from the card room casinos. Um, but with the 27, you know, just hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising, confusing voters on this topic of sports wagering, it was just an untenable climate where, you know, even if we would have spent $100 million, I don't think 26 would have passed even without any funded opposition. It was just overwhelming for voters. Our polling showed it from the get-go. The voters were just confused between the two. And, you know, you said it, Nicole, when voters don't know, they vote no. And I think that the card clubs ended up being the big winners, <laughs> frankly. They got what they wanted, which was no on everything. They didn't want any changes to their card rooms. I also do want to point out, we're talking about all the tribes. Uh, yes, on 26, no, on 27 board. There, there were a few smaller tribes that were supporting uh, Prop 27, and they were appearing in a lot of these ads very visibly. So um, mm -hmm. just a note there. Um, we got a question. I wonder, I don't think any of you are working on the the tobacco referendum, but is there any, any interest in discussing that? Or are we surprised at all about outcomes? 
I'm not surprised at the outcome. Well, I'm just surprised that uh, that Michael Bloomberg spent so much money. I mean, I think he's up to fifty plus million, maybe even close to closer to mid fifties, and how much he alone spent. The outcome, I think, was predetermined. It's California and tobacco. But Terry, you were you were involved in that campaign. Yeah, no, Brandon said what I was going to say. I think the only other thing I'll add, just in terms of being surprised, I, you know, we were looking for the tobacco companies to do something. I think the only thing we ever saw was, you know, kind of at local convenience stores, gas stations, they had, they had, had a campaign to, to say no on 21, um, kind of local grassroots campaign, but we never saw much from the tobacco companies to Brandon's point, that's a hard thing to do uh, to be a tobacco company in California. Um, but you know, no surprise there, we contributed and supported uh, that, that initiative as well. And uh, I'm very happy with the outcome. Sorry, Terry, I said that we, you weren't on 31, but you were, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Well, you know, on the referendum um, point, there are two, two potential referendums in the works right now. Um, I think they're gathering signatures on the fast food sort of collective bargaining issue and the ban on oil gas wells um, within a certain distance of, of homes, neighborhoods, and schools. Um, Terry, I think you're, pr I probably could guess where you are on the, the gas one, but um, I don't know, maybe you could give us a preview for if, if or whether either of these could be on the ballot in a couple of years. So Nicole, this is only, you know, I only know what I've heard. We're not actively involved in either of those at this point in time. Um, you know, we again have concerns anytime we're talking about money that should and could go to public schools and students um, not doing so. And so with uh, with the uh, gas one, oil, uh, oil one, you know, we'll see what happens um, over time. Um, and obviously we support our brothers and sisters in labor. And so um, probably best to have a conversation with SEIU regarding the uh, fast food referendum. I know they worked really hard. Um, governor was very supportive of it. So we'll see what happens. Um, but fast food industry does have a lot of money and likely to be a very expensive uh, 2024 there as well. I, th I think these are just to stop the law from going into effect. I don't think these will make it to the ballot. I worked on the plastic bag referendum a couple of years ago. And, you know, essentially the companies that made those bags bought the, the almost two years from the time the law passed to it actually went into effect and didn't spend, I think they spent like virtually nothing on the actual campaign because they just had bought the time, made their money and moved on. Is that a common um, sort of trend that, you know, it, or interests are spending a lot of money on referendums to buy to delay implementation basically rather than actually overturn a law yes <laughs> yes i mean the tobacco industry made hundreds of millions of dollars by delaying you know the, the ban on flavored tobacco i don't know i'm not involved with either of those campaigns at this point um but uh i i think there may i think the fast food industry has indicated a willingness to even fight it out at the ballot and, and maybe not just delay it um, but Nicole, I think it raises a good point. I, I say this all the time when I sit on these types of panels, and that is, I think we're going to see more referenda um, in the coming years because the legislature is just so dominant of one party, so progressive, and the voters aren't. I mean, California voters elect Democrats for sure, overwhelmingly, um, but on policy issues, on ballot measure issues, I tell clients all the time, don't presume that the voters are as liberal as the legislature. We win time and time again on issues that the legislature passes, but the voters reject. We won Proposition 22, the, the ride share and food delivery, the app-based one. Um, we, we, win, we win consistently um, when the legislature is far more progressive than the voters. Both California voters are Democrats. They're blue Democrats. But on issues, 
Um, we can often win on these, you know, quote unquote, business side issues because uh, the voters, you know, they, they pick their way through the ballot and they, you know, they hear the arguments. So um, I did want to ask you about Prop 29. That's one of the ones we haven't talked about yet. Um, this was the third time in four years that this has been on our ballot um, and it was defeated for the third time. <laughs> uh, are, are we going to see this again in 2024? I sure hope not. Uh, you know, look, we make our money on ballot measure campaigns and we don't, it, it, it is, it's shameful. I mean, let's just call it for what it is. It's absolutely shameful that one union is spending money time and time again. Uh, we all know what they're doing. Uh, I'll say it, it's extortion. They're trying to use the ballot measure process to leverage union negotiations, union organizing. I'm, I'm for unions. I represent unions. This is not a uh, a statement on whether workers should unionize or not. It's a statement on abuse of the ballot measure process. It is, uh, it's shameful. There's no other way around it. And everybody knows what's happening. And unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do. If somebody has a couple million dollars, they can qualify ballot measures in California. Um, but I hope for California voters' sake, I mean, we we finally started seeing and hearing from voters in our polling, like, what is going on? Why are we doing this time and time again? I mean, regulating kidney dialysis is hardly what Hiram Johnson uh, thought about when we created the initiative and referendum system in, in California. Terry, from one union to another, any thoughts on, on this measure that we keep seeing? Oh, I just want to respectfully say we have no parts of this. So I, you know, let Brandon's comments stand. Um, that is, that is, uh, again, we support generally speaking, our brothers and sisters in labor. Um, I have nothing further to say about that one. Uh, one reason I love doing these um, ballot proposition panels is because it kind of you can get more into it. It's not just Republican, Democrat. Um, so I'm curious about Proposition One. We can go there for a little bit. Um, you know, in the last panel um, and in the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of talk about how that did give a boost to Democrats um, in some of these closer races. I'm just curious, any general observations about, you know, Prop one, um, Sherry, you mentioned that you you were doing some of, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom gave some of his advertising to that. So um, I guess just any other thoughts about Prop one from any of you? I'll also add that um, Rick Caruso did as well. In some of our ads, we we took a sort of sidebar for him to um, help support that one. So. I mean, this was one of those issues where it's not confusing um, and it did get more votes than any other candidate on the ballot. I think we all knew that. Mm -hmm. and yeah. It's interesting. Um, we all kind of knew it, so didn't need too much effort, but certainly I think it's important enough that anybody who did contribute um, made it just become more forefront for us as, you know, citizens of California. After doing that campaign that I did um, for Gavin around the country, it was really obvious that um, where we were pushing buttons, you know, in Texas and Missouri, and we were in five or six states, and it was all about that. So uh, personally, I'm thrilled that it passed and you know, I think it's an important step for our constitution and I'd do it again. <laughs> I'll just step in, Nicole, like for, for CTA, we have supported um, initiatives on reproductive rights and protecting women's uh, reproductive freedoms for a number of years. This was something at the beginning of the summer, um, NEA nationally took a position in support of uh, women's reproductive freedom. And so 
this was relatively easy for us, especially given our population of members, the majority of whom are women, um, really something very easy for us to do and glad we did. Um, I meant to ask this at the beginning, but were there any, um, outside of what we've already discussed, are, are there any, were there any major surprises for any of the four of you from this cycle of ballot propositions um, that we wanted to mention? I don't think the outcome, I mean, the Prop 30 was really the only close contested race. I think everyone sort of knew the public polls were indicating where the measures were going to go. What was a little bit surprising to me, and, and we tracked this very closely, was the total campaign spend. Uh, 2020 was the most we've ever spent on ballot measures in, in California. We spent 770 million campaigns raised that much, I should, I should say. And um, by by election day, the, the total was 769 million, even though we only had seven measures versus 14 measures. Now, the gaming ones obviously accounted for about half of that. Um, but still, that's still another, you know, almost $400 million that were spent on these other campaigns. So that was, um, you know, that was a bit surprising. And I think that's the trend. You know, a $100 million campaign used to be the exception. It used to be eye popping. But now it's become the norm because it is so expensive to communicate with voters, as Sherry knows, uh, and you have to do it for so much longer because everybody gets a vote now in the in the mail a month out, and so you can't wait till the final three two two weeks of the campaign anymore. You have to communicate six or seven weeks, you know, three weeks ahead of people getting their ballot if you're going to be successful. Yeah, I I have to say that um, the trend in my business is not good, and I mean that in terms of how much it takes to stay on any medium. And, you know, television was very supportive of 27 because they're like, great, as soon as this is over, we can replace those automotive dollars that we lost because we'll have uh, FanDuel and, you know, whomever, any of the, the online gaming companies become regular advertisers. And that was true. But the cost factor is, it, it can't just keep going up while we're watching the mediums that we're all using uh, lose audience because the more streaming and YouTubing and anything you want to name, the more we have, uh, the thinner the audience becomes and it's getting more and more difficult to, to make a dent on television uh, I noticed that the television stations, and I bitched dramatically, um, was that they open up their, their breaks. Let's have even more time on our breaks. Where we had a four-minute break, let's go six. You know, mm -hmm. so it's, it's increasingly difficult. We're going to have to revisit as, uh, you know, an industry. We're, we're going to have to revisit how we get the message out. And that's why it's costing so much money. My biggest surprise was how few there were. I think it was the fewest since 2016, uh, in large part because some of the heavyweights decided not to go to the ballot. Certainly the medical malpractice and plastics would have been um, something that would have generated a lot of controversy and ads and a lot of close races there. And mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, I think that's healthy. I wish the kidney people and the gaming people would have done the same thing. But, uh, you know, that that was a big factor to me. Also, this year, it was you know exceedingly expensive to get things on the ballot because of COVID. Signature mm -hmm. gathering cartel had jacked up their rates. I, I, I've heard in some localities they were paying 12 to 15 bucks a signature for some local measures because of 25 plus 25 yeah crazy we paid 25 on a local measure yeah so that's you know that was, those are my takeaway surprises 
and not to you know rub uh, rub Steve Doe's in it. Steve knows in it. I our biggest surprise obviously was that uh, uh, Prop Thirty is doing as well as it is. Um, final count isn't in, but we're at fifty nine percent now, and that's not where we thought we'd be. We thought we'd be a little bit closer, um, but we're hopeful that we would um, defeat it, but thought we'd be a little bit in the you know, 51, 52. Um, we did get a question since since we brought up uh, the cost of signature gathering. Um, there have been news stories about signature gatherers lying about the content of their petitions. Does this make a significant difference? And is there any possibility that signature gathering process might be more regulated? Yeah, it's, it's like negative, uh, negative TV ads, right? <laughs> it's been happening since, you know, since you, we pay these, they're independent contractors. It is a, uh, the seedy underside of this, of this profession. Um, you know, you as campaigns, we give talking points. We tell the signature gatherers what they should say, what they can say, but they're all out there in front of the Safeway, basically saying what they need to, to collect that $10, $12 per signature. And they are, um, they are among the best salespeople in politics because they know, you know, they are they're at the retail level trying to get a signature from, you know, disinterested voters. Um, so, yeah, is there is there a little bit stretch or even flat out lies going on from these folks? Absolutely. But but there always has been. And then one more question. Um, we were talking, Sherry, you were talking about the change in TV advertising or, or advertising in general, um, the sort of increase in uh platforms and ways ways to get your message out a, a question came I, I think this is asking about you know tv ads specifically when does the focus shift to gen z on their platforms i guess are we gonna, are uh maybe the, in 2024 are we going to see campaign ads on tiktok as we're scrolling oh yeah we are <laughs> we are we absolutely are yeah if you look oh, at campaign spending we are spending almost as much on digital platforms now as we are on traditional cable and TV. That's also why campaigns are so expensive because you have to do everything. You can't Correct. just shift to TikTok. You can't just shift to Facebook because you're missing huge sec. You know, look, I mean, we all watch TV or we stream TV. We're looking at Facebook on our phones. We are just so dispersed, you know, as media consumers uh, that you have to hit everybody where they are in order to get your saturation levels. And that's, that's another reason campaigns are so costly. Yeah, it'll change, but it won't. Uh, I don't think anyone, any of them will go away, at least not while I'm still working. But um, I think one of the most interesting things I had uh, was a lot of local, local races uh, in Santa Clara, and we were fighting for YouTube, right, just to get in there. And so every week we were uh, in an inordinate amount of time to, you know, devoted to staying on YouTube and getting as much exposure as we could get because they are very local. You can target by zip code. You, you know, there's a lot of pieces to it. But then there's this whole other concept of streaming that has no commercials. You know, Netflix and uh, Hulu all have got platforms now where you don't have to pay as much for the rental so they'll get around to being television stations soon enough but it's he brandon's absolutely right we had to be everywhere i did not see i have seen uh campaign ads on all digital except i haven't seen any on tiktok yet so maybe i'm just not not the target i haven't either <laughs> no we're not we're not doing a lot of tiktok advertising right now well influencing is uh uh 
emerging as a way for people to make money. So maybe I don't know if there's a, an opportunity there for campaigns to pay for endorsements of TikTok influencers. Well, there's whole companies now that I can hire just to kind of purchase influencers to help me with my messaging. We did one for um, 2020 in which we had LeBron James sponsor us with and uh, just influencers to get African-American 18 to 24 year old men uh, volunteer to work at the voting centers. And we got 44,000 young men sign up. And that was the way we reached them. It was fascinating. And I loved it. <laughs> it was good to see, you know, we had numbers, real raw numbers and did it in about three weeks. It was great. Um, well, I don't see other, we have about three minutes left. Um, I guess final call for people to submit questions for our panel here. And if not, maybe we can wrap it up a little early unless anybody has like final closing thoughts they wanna get out. Thank you for hosting yeah. us. That was very nice. Thanks. thanks for hosting and keeping us in check, Nicole. And thanks to <laughs> Capital Weekly for doing this. It's always a fun post-election panel. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much to Capital Weekly. Thanks to all of our panelists. This was a, a really interesting and fun discussion. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Nicole, everyone. panelists, thank you so much for uh, participating in this. Uh, we'll have you again in two years, when I'm sure the dialysis <laughs> initiative will be back again. Uh, <laughs> God knows what else. So, uh... The Capital Weekly podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.